Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at If you made it here today, I think God has something for all of us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So we talked a little bit about this last week, but everyone in this room has a shadow mission. You have a shadow mission. If there's a John here, John or John's, you have a shadow mission. I have a shadow mission. Shane has a shadow mission. My mom doesn't because she's pretty much perfect, right? She bats a thousand. She's amazing. Uh, but hey, I, sometimes I, I feel like Oprah. Like I should be saying, you got a shadow mission, you got a shadow mission, you got a shadow mission. We all have a shadow mission. A shadow mission is, it's an, it's an unworthy pursuit. It's a, it's a dark, darkened purpose. Uh, we could say it's a, a happiness of ours that somehow lies outside the range of God's love for us. So uh, a, a darkened purpose is a counterfeiting of the purposes of God for our lives. And so when we talk about a shadow mission, we have to talk about you and I are designed by God to live on purpose. So it's not the case, turn to the neighbor and say, it's not the case. It's not the case that some of us in this room live from purpose and then some of us don't live from purpose. Everybody lives on purpose. You are designed by God to live a purposeful life. We are purpose creatures. So the question is, what purpose are you living from? And we talked a little bit about that last week. What I want to talk about here today, I want to scale it up a little bit, and I want to highlight four aspects of a shadow mission for the church. I believe churches can have a shadow mission. And so today, if you're taking notes, or if not, you want to figure out kind of a map, for where we're going, I'm going to highlight four different dimensions of a shadow church and how you and I can respond in a faithful way. So number one, when we the church, everyone say the church, when we the church cultivate an overly critical disposition towards culture rather than a merciful one, we become spiritually bankrupt. It's kind of a long sentence, so I'm going to say it one more time. When we, the church, cultivate an overly critical disposition towards culture rather than a merciful one, we become spiritually bankrupt. And I know it's not, it's not hard to become critical when we survey the panorama of human wreckage and human arrogance and human pride and just plain old stupidity when we go on social media. Can I get an amen to that? Like, I think it's easy to get critical, to get a critical mind, to get a critical heart when we go on social media and we see just people doing stupid things. I understand that. Uh, and I think it's, it's essential. It's an essential sacred responsibility of the church that we adjudicate in wisdom ideas that are deeply flawed. Can I get an amen? So as a church, we have a sacred responsibility to speak truth to powers. I think we got to deconstruct, deconstruct, 
deconstructionism. I think we need to speak to ideas that are um, defective, that lead people away from the purpose of the God and the life of the kingdom. And we need to speak to those issues in wisdom. And as a church, we're unapologetic about speaking to social issues and political issues and issues that are theological that might be a little bit controversial. We, we have a sacred responsibility as the community of believers to speak truth, to adjudicate matters in wisdom and to do a bit of an expose on bad, faulty ideas. Even Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, if you're not familiar with your Bible. Um, This is a letter written to a church in Corinth, and Paul says, any idea, any philosophical machination that exalts itself above the knowledge of God are to be torn down. So um, on one level... We are called to criticize deeply flawed, bad ideas that are bringing human life into ruination. However, our calling is not to tear down people with our words or our hearts. We are not called to tear down people with our words or in our hearts. Our disposition, our basic disposition when vis-a-vis culture is a merciful one. Well, see, here's the thing. People who don't know Jesus, I say this often, do and say things that people who don't know Jesus say and do. Sometimes we're like, how could that person say that? Like, well, because they don't know Jesus. And my concern for the church is that we become so critical and we cultivate a critical disposition towards the very people God has called us to love and to serve and to give our lives away and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to without sacrificing the truth. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Any parent here, you have a child that has a drum? Have you ever been in that, you hit that threshold, you're like, oh, it's so cute, keep on drumming. And then you're like, oh my God, burn my ears off. You know, <laughs> I, I just, I, I have to wonder if, and I'm gonna move on just a little bit, but just hear me. If we do not have love at the center of our spirituality, as a movement, as a body that belongs to Jesus, I think we're like a drum in the ears of God, a clanging cymbal that God's like, I can't handle this anymore. Verse two, and if I have prophetic powers and I do all the spiritual mapping and I speak to the powers at CUNA, the principalities and powers that take authority over them, and I've had all the understanding of the cosmic mysteries and I have wisdom and knowledge and I have faith that moves mountains, but I do not love, I am nothing. Verse three, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is is outlining the spiritual DNA of the body of Christ. He's saying the centerpiece of our life in the kingdom of God is mercy and love. 
fact, Paul says, if you do not have love, you're like a clanging cymbal, as we mentioned, a gong. What, what is he referring to? He's referring to pagan, a pagan liturgy where they had rites and they had invocations and they tried to placate the gods and they would sound all these cymbals and gongs. Paul is essentially saying, if the people of God no longer have the love of God, they're no better than paganism. Mercy is to be the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. Romans 5 says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. Do we have verse 6? Verse 6, yes, perfect. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Note that word, while. While we were still weak. So check the grammatical construction of that. Not after we got our lives cleaned up. But while we were against God. Verse 7 continues. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8. But God shows his, could everyone say, his love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Wow, Christ died for us. While, not after. Many people think that when, we, when, when it comes to Christianity, the verse in John 3.16 says something like this, that the father sent his son to die on our behalf in order to love us. But we know that's not what John 3.16 says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for our sake and benefit. While we were still sinners. What is sin? Sin is a very complex idea, but it's a complex ecosystem of attitudes, beliefs, and habits, and lifestyles, and desires, and longings that are rooted in the alienation of God. While we were, in, in the profoundest sense, alienated from the life of the kingdom of God, God was still acting in response to us in his relationship with us and others and creation, not in a judgmental way, but in a merciful way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, Paul says in another letter, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses, but God was rich in his mercy and his love for us. Matthew chapter nine says this, Matthew, and Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees, everyone say the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But then he heard it, Jesus, and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, sinners to repentance. I, I, it's like Jesus is making very, very clear that any movement 
that is to be aligned with the kingdom of God, shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit, has to have mercy at its core, its centerpiece. If I think about this, and I just, this is just, makes you want to go, hmm, when you think about this befuddling passage, Jesus is reclining with tax collectors. It's called table fellowship. And in the purity world of Jesus' day, this would have been a social nightmare. Jesus reclining with prostitutes and tax collectors. I just want to ask you the question, who are your tax collectors and prostitutes? Not your, that was awfully said, not your prostitutes. Oh my God. If it preaches, okay, it preaches. So embarrassing. But who? But who would we consider? There it is. Hey. Who would we consider to be the tax collectors and prostitutes of our day? Because when the, when, hey, check this out. When the Holy Spirit moves and he's doing something unique and we experience an intensification of his power, guess what? It will always get messy. It will always get messy. It's a social nightmare when Jesus comes because he always, he always takes the social arrangements that we have and he just turns them upside down or right side up or however you want to say it because God is a God of mercy. Matthew chapter 12 says this. This is one of the more befuddling passages that I've ever read. And I'm going to read this really quick. Jesus is telling a parable. Matthew 12, 43 says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. This is, he making, Jesus is making a sweeping denunciation of the Pharisees here. And uh, Jesus continues, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Verse 45, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell, that, dwell in that person. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So the sweeping indictment is just like, oh, wow, Jesus. He says this, so will it be with this evil generation. Okay, so Jesus, please hear me. Jesus is not criticizing individual exorcism as being ineffective. He is, Jesus is launching the kingdom of God and God is setting people free in radical ways. What Jesus is saying, any renewal movement that does not have mercy at its center is wicked. In fact, he says, they merce up, I'll say it this way, a movement that does not have the, uh, the love of God, but the holiness of God is a demonic movement. Because Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees. The Pharisees were much like Jesus. They were a renewal movement that were preparing for the dramatic arrival of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, your holiness is great. You have swept the house clean. You've intensified some rules and some regulations and some ceremonial practices on Sabbath and different things. Whatever, great. But Jesus is saying, because you don't have mercy, seven more demons will come and fill your house. So we will be a people that speaks 
the truth to the powers. We value truth. We broker in truth. God is a God of truth. Can I get an amen? And we will be a people that will live holy lives. Wholly devoted to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But if we have all of that and do not act in merciful ways with each other and with the culture and with people that we don't agree with, Jesus announces the same indictment over us. You are an evil and wicked generation. Anything that is not of love is not of God. So what is mercy? Mercy is giving people what they don't deserve. It's giving love and, and service and help and encouragement when they don't deserve it. And how many of you in this room deserve mercy? None of us. Like, I, I love what one pastor said recently. He goes, he speaks, he looks to his church and he says this, all of you are bad. And he just stares, for, stares at him for a long, awkward time. And then he goes on. Here's the thing. God is so good that he doesn't show us how really bad we are all at the same time. Can I get an amen to that? He slowly, this is called sanctification. He slowly drips how bad you are over time. Because if he was in a moment, in this rhapsodic or revelatory moment, he was to download how evil and wicked we really are, it's like, hey, it's like, what's that movie? Come on, help me out. Indiana Jones and whatever, Raiders of the, whatever it is. The Ark of the Covenant, your face explodes, it melts off. Some of you have no idea if you're under 40 what I'm talking about. But God is so good that he has to, in an unfolding, revelatory way, reveal to you how bad you are. We have, guys, sub subterranean continents of resentment and selfishness and pride and arrogance that goes down to the very core of our personality. Everyone in this room needs mercy. No one in this room deserves to be here. And if we forget that God is merciful towards us, we then have a tendency to forget that God's love is paradigmatic for us and that we have a responsibility to line up with heaven and the love that God has for other people and to reflect that love to people who are in desperate need that do things that people who don't know God do. A spiritual environment without mercy is in the profoundest way bankrupt. There is no health, there's no growth, there's no life without the mercy of God. And here's the thing, we all have struggles, right? There's not one person in here that's a spiritual automaton that has everything perfectly lined up in their life. We, we have struggles, we have tension, we have needs. Some of you have used the word divorce in your marriage this month. Uh, we all have sin that we have to address on a consistent basis. Um, we, we, some of us um, are faithless. Some of us are, are overwhelmed in life. We have, we have issues. We have 
we have problems, we, we, we're navigating a, a complex ecosystem called our culture and we can get sucked into its gravitational pull. And there's so many different things that are, are, are after us. There's, we live in a lying culture. We can go on and on and on. Guys, more than anything, I just want to say, we need the mercy of God. Okay, some of you don't believe me, but I'm going to do this. Everyone here today, you're right here. We're all right here. We're all on the same level. I got my problems. You got your problems. They might be a little bit different, but we're all right here. This is our starting point. No one starts here or here or here. We all start here. And if it's not for God's mercy... I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how good looking you are. I don't care if if you are just really smart and you can do things in your own strength. We can never get from here to here without God's mercy. I told myself I want to do this, but I'm going to do it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses. If you're dead, you're dead. But it's through the mercy of God that he makes us alive. So if we need help with anxiety, if we need help with with depression, if we need help with sin, if we have to work through some dysfunction in our marriage and with our family, we need more than willpower or soul power or you just do you. You need mercy. Some of you think you're standing today because you did something. Actually, no one thinks that. I think we we really know that. No, we're not standing here today because we did anything. This was us. Sorry, I'm doing it. Until I get some amens, I'm not getting up. This is you. Come on. We act like we just walk into church. Yeah, I got this Christian thing going, right? I understand the mysteries of spiritual mapping. I figured out justification by faith. Yeah, I got my stuff together. And we act as if we don't need mercy every day. In fact, many of us just assume that God's mercy is shown one time at conversion. When if we truly understand who we are and the breathtaking dimensions of the cross and his love for us, we begin to realize, no, we need God's mercy every single day. So we're standing today in grace, not perfect, but we're standing in grace and in love and in power and in authority and we're not alone and we are loved by God and we are sons and daughters of the King of King, not because we did anything at all. I, I feel it. We got to demolish pride, arrogance, pretending, fakery. Some of you are scoffers in here. That's totally fine, but I love you. 
Some of us think we just, we, we could do it in our own strength, but I just want to say what Dre said earlier, it is not by might, it's not by power, it is by the Spirit of the living God that we are breathing, that we are here today, alive, that our freedom, that our deliverance, that those things that have kept us from the, from the good purposes of God are not, please hear me today, are not the result of us getting God's attention because we deserve it. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm freaking myself out here today. Like, I just get back on the stage, Chris. No, right? I'm just... We, we need mercy. We all have tensions that we're navigating. We, we're tired, we're exhausted, we're broken, we say things. Some of us still don't realize the power of sanctification. We don't understand those subterranean continents of resentment in our heart that is corrosive and is leading us away from the presence of God. You and I need mercy. In a spiritual environment that has mercy at its, at its center is an environment that produces health and growth and life and healing and deliverance. Mercy. This is why we need to be merciful to each other. And this is why God has called us to be merciful to a world that is wrecked. Because God so loved the world. Amen. Because there's, there's coming a, a day when people, the next, I guarantee you, the next three to four to five years, people are going to come into this room right now. If you saw them right now, you'd be like, no way. That brother is coming into this house. But I guarantee you, I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, Capital Church, get ready. Because there are people that are broken. They don't love Jesus. You don't agree with their lifestyle. We're all on the same page. But they're going to come and they're going to flood this church. Some of them, they're coming in the church. And I, I, want, I want people to be so surprised by the mercy of God. Because there's going to... Listen... People are going to come and set foot inside this sanctuary and they're going to hang their head and their lives are going to be filled with shame and guilt and torture and anxiety and depression. They don't think anybody loves them. They don't think anybody cares about them. They feel like they're alone. They feel like they have no future, but God is bringing them to this house. And I see them because this environment of this house is going to be woven through mercy and so much love that they're going to drop to their knees. They're going to declare that God is good, that he's their savior, and he's the one that can cleanse them from every sin, every torturous demonic presence, every, every anxiety, every despairing thought. That happens because God is a merciful God. 
number two. That was a long number one. So 14 hours from now, I will finish. I, 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 won't, I, I promise I'm not going to be long. When we focus, and here's the thing, here's another shadow purpose. When we focus on gathering over community, we embrace an unworthy pursuit. When we focus on gathering over community, we embrace an unworthy pursuit. It's, and, and it's funny, I'm in a unique season in life, both my wife and I, where we have 700 kids and 1,700 chickens. Coming on Sunday is exhausting. And if not for my wife, can you give it up for my wife? She's absolutely incredible. If not for her, I'm not preaching. I'm in the mountains. I'm losing my mind. I mean, come on, 1,700 chickens and 700 kids. That's a lot, right? But we're in a unique perspective. We, or we have a unique perspective because we're in this, this season where, okay, it's, it's easy. It's easy to come and go. It's like, if you, if you, there are some Sundays, if you saw me out at lunch, this is me. I'm not joking, right? I'm, I, I have nothing left to give to my family. <laughs> the Cowboys are losing, and I have nothing left to give to my family's family. And I get that. I, I, I understand we, we all have, we're, we're all busy. We all have a lot of responsibilities. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but, but I just want to challenge all of us. Because I think a shadow mission of the church is when we begin to treat the church as just a, a, a gathering place yeah. rather than a family and a community. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, essentially we become a, pl a placeless people. Yeah. Wow. Um, we, we, just, we, we come and go and we don't really interact and we're, we're not really involved in the life and the dynamics of, of the community. In fact, one pastor said this, just because a service ends doesn't mean that church does. Right. And so we just come in and we get our fix. And we're like, don't, no one talk to me, right? That's maybe some of us who are called introverts, okay? And I, under, and I understand the dynamics behind that, but I think um, we, have, we have to understand that the life of the kingdom revolves around relationships and family and finding your place. When we just kind of come and go, when we drift through life, we become a shadow community. We become just a, a, a gathering, a powerless, placeless place for people to not experience any kind of change. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 and 19 says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What, look at the, the, if you look at the, the grammar behind this, to be filled with the Spirit is in the passive, meaning you and I cannot fill ourselves up. How does God fill us up? Found in verse 19. Addressing one another with hymns and songs and encouraging words. In other words, when we come to church, if we really want to become community-oriented, we have a responsibility, Paul is saying, to fill each other up. You and I cannot just by ourselves fill ourselves up. We need other people with good words, a good present, acts of service, love with each other. We need those things, those dynamic things that make up a community rather than a gathering that fills us up with the Spirit 
of God. So what I suggest what we do, rather than just, just coming and receiving, and I want you to receive, and I want you to be blessed, I'm going to talk about this in about two minutes. I want us to experience the life, the kingdom of God on Sundays. That's wonderful. But I also want us to come prepared on Sundays to bless each other with three good words. What if 15 to 1,500 people to 2,000 people on a given Sunday came with three encouraging words for someone else. Filling each other up. Not just the gathering, but a community. Gatherers just come and go. Community people stay. They linger a little bit because they want to bless other people with good words. We need to know each other. We need to get out of our comfort zone. Can I get an amen? And you step out. And, and, and when, when I'm talking about gathering um, over community as a shadow purpose, this applies not just to a Sunday. This applies to every day in our week. We have a responsibility to partner with the Holy Spirit to fill each other up. And everyone said amen. Number three, when we accommodate consumerism over discipleship, we become a shadow church. When we accommodate consumerism over discipleship, we become a shadow church. Consumerism, if, if you want to know, is basically the church is seen as a purveyor of religious goods. So we just kind of come and we get some information about God on a Sunday. And it, it, it doesn't even come within, this, within our schema or even within our mind that we have a responsibility to contribute, to give our lives away. Commitment is, is, is something you, you can or not do. A consumer church or a consumer person or a consumer Christian is like a body of water where it receives uh, an inflow, but there's no outflow. And if you know anything about bodies of water like me, because I'm a water specialist, <laughs> conditions of toxicity is when water only comes in and there's no outflow. A consumer church is similar to that. I want us to be blessed. I want us to come and experience the power of God. I want us to learn. I want us to know God. I want us to grow. I want us to experience peace. I want us to experience the love of God. I want us to be healed on Sunday, and we are going to have that, gosh darn it. We are going to fight for that. We're going to fight for you. I have a responsibility to actualize as I partner with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God for all of us. But it's not just me. A consumer church focuses just on the professionals. A discipled church focuses on all of us. And our responsibility in the life of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 25 says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. I'm not going to read through that story, but Jesus tells us this parable. And I've studied this for such a long time, and I think there's still some befuddling things, some puzzles in my head, but I think I figured out what Jesus was saying. He was saying, this is an extension, Matthew chapter 25 of Matthew 24, in this eschatological um, uh, passage. Jesus is emphasizing the need and the posture and the response of his people in the end days. And then he gives us this parable of a bridegroom and 10 virgins. There are five virgins that are wise and there are five virgins that are unwise. And so the five wise virgins, they trim their lamp. The five foolish virgins, they do not trim their lamp. They all fall asleep. And then as the story is told by Jesus, you have the bridegroom that comes when they weren't expecting. They wake up. The five wise virgins are ready to go. They're prepared for the dramatic arrival of the kingdom of God. The five foolish virgins are not 
prepared for the arrival of God's kingdom. They then go to the five wise and they ask for oil and the five wise say that they don't have enough and the bridegroom comes and the five unwise, foolish virgins are left outside the kingdom of God. What is the issue here that Jesus is highlighting? He is highlighting what is so problematic in a consumer church and it's this, we borrow our preparedness. In other words, a consumer church borrows their faith, they borrow their devotion, they borrow their wisdom, they borrow their authority, they borrow their ah, ah, Bible study plan from someone else that they trust, from the pastor, from that podcast guy, and they're unwilling to engage the life and the dimensions of the kingdom of God. A consumer church is one as such that does not take responsibility for their relationship with Christ. I think it's great that a really wonderful pastor 4,000 miles from here has some words for you. I think that's wonderful and you should listen to great podcasts. But I just want you to know that you have your Bible and you have the Holy Spirit greater than Pastor Ken, greater than me, greater than Stephen Furtick, greater, I could go down the list of all these people that could give you great wisdom, but you have your Bible. Jesus has made his presence available to you. And you have the wisdom from, man, first service was giving me a ton of amens. I'm, I can't, I'm ready for it. Come on church, give me some amens. But we have access to wisdom from the Holy Spirit that transcends what some wonderful pastor says 4,000 miles away from here, which is great. Let's listen to all the wonderful pastors. We're so blessed. The problem in a consumer church, though, is what Neil Postman talked about in the 80s. He called it the low information action ratio. In other words, we have so much information that we become paralyzed to such an extent we can't act on what we know. So in other words, there's an inverted relationship between information and acting on it. So if you glut information over and over and over and over and over on Sunday and you don't act upon it because it's the, the paralysis of analysis, then we become a shadow version of what God's called us to be. God wants to move us out of dead orthodoxy where we just have a cognitive, highly rationalist understanding of God and move us into the personal application of the word of God. God is asking us to be faithful. Are you, are, am, am this too harsh? Is my face soft and smiley? Right? Like what I, right? God is calling us to, to live a life of faithfulness and I believe this more and more and more. The way you know the reality of God is not just by hearing things on Sunday. The way you know that God is real and you enter into the life of the kingdom of God is when you put into practice what you hear on a Sunday or what you hear or read from your Bible on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Consumer church, the consumer church lives off of borrowed faith. But I think God's calling us higher. God's calling us into a faith where we're 
reading our Bibles, we're spending time in prayer, we're serving one another, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to move us higher into his kingdom. Finally, number four, when we favor production value over the presence of God, we just become a concert or a TED talk. A.W. Tozer said this as I close, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would, would go on. No one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. And I think he's wrong. I think it's 98%. Bad joke. We need the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy, excuse me, First Timothy 3.15 says, if I delay, Paul is speaking to Timothy, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. God is alive. His presence is here. Production value is important. Technology is important. We need a new sound system. That's important. Can I get an amen? We're going to get more stuff. That's all wonderful. But if all we value is a production, a concert, a feeling, an experience over and against that the presence of God is here and he can move even if the song isn't right, even if the preacher doesn't preach my favorite message, even if uh, my friends aren't with me, even if I just don't feel right and it's been a really rough week, God is alive and present among his people. We cannot reduce church and Christianity to a series of doctrinal truths that require only mental assent without the practical application. Uh, God is calling us out of, as I mentioned before, a merely cognitive, highly rationalist and complex theological approach to Christianity, not to replace it with anti-intellectualism, but with a deep and practical understanding and experience of God's living presence in our life on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays. God is alive and his presence is with us today. I want to be, here's the thing, we are not just a production people, we are a presence people. If all we have is good production without the presence of God, hmm? I want good production, can I get an amen? We want good programs, nothing wrong with those, those could be very Holy Spirit things. But we want to be a people that comes with a great expectation that every Sunday, and then we'll wake up my daily life, that God is going to be present. Yes. Amen. That we got to elevate our expectation a little more. God is on the move. It's not by, as Dre said it, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We need his power. We need his authority. You need more than a nice homily. We need more than just a nice hymn. Great, all those things are great. We need the presence of God. We need the power of Jesus. We need his strength. We need encounters with Jesus. We need the real, not the fake. 
We need more than some highly rationalist approach to Christianity. And I'm a very cognitive person, so I'm speaking to myself. Probably no one, well, we're all very cognitive, right? That's very condescending, right? We're all very, very smart in here. I tend to be very cognitive, so I'm speaking to myself. We need more than just mental assent. We need the power of Jesus flowing through us in our lives, in our children's lives, through our families, in our minds, in our bodies, through us into the city, in our neighborhoods, in our streets, in our grocery stores, at whatever uh, coffee shop, into our universities. Please, someone help me out here. Into our public institutions. We need the presence of Jesus. And everyone said amen. Okay, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for you. If you, have, if you today, you would say, and I, just, I want to get this really... We'll get this part. I don't want to move too fast, but I need to hit, the, hit this pretty quick. If you find yourself in one of those four groups, Chris, yeah, I, I realize I have not had mercy at the center of my relationship with God. That I've developed a, or cultivated a critical disposition towards culture. And I'm realizing the people that God's called me to reach, I've been really critical of, and I just want the Holy Spirit to come and soften my heart. Or maybe you realize you just, you kind of come and go. There's no judgment here today. But you're more of a gatherer than a community person. And you want to explore. You just felt compelled. The Holy Spirit was speaking to you. You want to explore the dimensions of life as a family. You want to learn what that is. Or, or maybe... You, you can see, okay, Chris, I think I'm kind of like a consumer person. I, I realize I love receiving, but maybe I need to, I need to learn to give. I, I, I no longer want to just borrow my faith and borrow my relationship with God. I want to move into a deeper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, and to give my life away. Or maybe you, you just, you're so... I see you, there's some people in here today, your, your soul is parched. It's like a, a wasteland, a desert wasteland, and you just want the living presence of Jesus today. You're like, I just need more of God. I, I need his presence. I need his strength. I need his power. I need him today. If you find yourself in one of those four groups and you've identified it, and you would like me to pray for you. You want God to pull you out of something and then move you into his mercy and his grace. Could you just raise your hand right now? Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, all over the place. If you raise your hand, I, I just want you to stand right now. Go ahead and stand. If you raise your hand, I'm gonna pray a quick prayer over you. We're gonna sing a song really quick before we do. I'm gonna pray God's blessing over you. If you're standing, go ahead and close your eyes, take your hand, put it on your heart. Father, I thank you for an exchange to take place for every son and daughter in this room. I thank you for your blessing. Father, I thank you for filling us with a, a deeper understanding of your love. I think for some of us, if maybe we just kind of been coming and going and we just kind of feel the need to become not a gatherer, but a, a family member. I thank you for your grace. 
Father, if it's we've been borrowing faith and maybe living off of someone else's faith, then we feel the challenge, the grace challenge of moving deeper in our relationship with Jesus in learning what it means to give our life away. I thank you, Father, for your grace. I thank you for your power. And there are people here today, they're, they're, they're thirsty for the living presence of God. And they're like, God, I, I want more of your presence today. I'm hungry for you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love and your presence to flow through them right now. I declare today's a new day over your sons and daughters. I thank you this is a day of mercy, day of grace, day of healing. Everyone say healing. A day of deep change wrought by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that the heavens are open today and you are pouring out love, you're pouring out mercy and grace, new minds, new hearts, new dispositions, new lifestyle. God, I thank you that you're breaking through in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you that you've given us a sound mind. If there's anyone in here that does not have a sound mind and they've been enslaved to bad ideas, I thank you for your freedom. Lord, anyone in bondage to addictions, I thank you for your deliverance. Father, I thank you today. You are, and everyone say this with me, a merciful God. You are a merciful God, and we thank you for pouring out your presence and your mercy on us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.